All right, welcome back to another edition of the Pat Davidson Podcast. I am very excited this week. I have the head of N1 Education, uh, Chasm. Pleasure to have you on here today. And um, if you wouldn't mind just giving a brief intro of yourself, uh, that'd be a great way to kick this off. Hey guys, uh, I'm Coach Kasim. Uh, as as Pat said, uh, I am the, the the founder and the head of N1 Education, and basically, I'm a person that's transitioned from somebody that was interested in the coaching aspect to now I work with trainers and coaches, you know, across the globe. We we focus on a what we call an end of one approach, which is really just kind of taking every facet of training, whether it be biomechanics, program design, nutrition, and figure out how can we make that work the best. For the individual and we've just been refining that process for a little over a decade now so you know anytime uh i think about processes and and trying to work with with people to move them towards their goals you know i always like my mind orients towards what principles does this person follow or you know what guides them and if you were going to talk about some of the big rock principles that guide you what are what are those things for you well, I mean, I assume that we're talking about working, you know, from a coaching perspective or, or whatnot, you know, um, and I would say probably one of the biggest ones that doesn't get as much of a, I would say like as much positive vibes on social media and whatnot, um, is that fact of like figuring out what is basically the, either the most negotiable thing for people, right. In terms of like, what's the, what's the, what gives you the most juice for the squeeze, uh, type of thing. So, because you can take so many approaches with somebody, you can have them diet harder, you can have them train harder, you can have them work harder in sets, or you can have them do more volume. Like you have so many strategies. So at the root of what we do is we teach all of these things, but the root is, well, which of those things are actually going to be the most negotiable for that person, you know, or the least adverse, you know, to their to their lifestyle and their preferences and, and whatnot, um, so that you can use the tools in the toolbox that this person's the most likely to take and, and be successful with. So it sounds like you're trying to discover the least invasive uh, avenue into creating mm-hmm. the greatest change possible. And, um, yeah. you know, you mentioned a number of factors, you know, you, you, intensity, volume, um, diet, those kinds of things. Um, you know, what are, what are some of like outside of those, are there other really big categories that you kind of work within in terms of just the buckets that you're looking at evaluating? And then is there like a specific, um, let me, what's the right word here? uh algorithm that you use to try to help you determine what the least invasive avenue is for people yeah so one of the things that we cover um in our courses is we call it the principle of thresholds and basically what that means is that if we look at every major category of thing that you need to do so that means like all right well your exercise needs to be it needs to be good enough to target the target tissue. It has to at least be good enough, right? All right, well, your technique has to be good enough. You have to put in at least a minimum amount of effort, a minimum amount of volume and a certain amount. And so basically like we we look at this as like, okay, there's all these categories where you have to reach a minimum threshold. And then if you do that, then you get like this net you know, outcome. So it's like, it's a multiplier. But if you hit a goose egg, a zero in any of them, well, then the whole thing is washed, right? It doesn't matter if you pick the perfect exercise, if your effort doesn't hit the threshold or if your volume doesn't hit the threshold. So what we look at is, is we look at, okay, for an individual, 
what is the minimum thresholds that they have for those things? And then within those categories, where do they have the easiest opportunity to improve? You know, so take, for example, exercise selection. You might have somebody that trains at home. All right, well, that's just not an area that they're able to improve, right? But they work from home. So maybe frequency and volume are very easy things for them to push, right? Like those are buttons that this person's like, yes, you know, I'll, I'll train for two hours a day. It's right there. It's convenient for me. Like, so they have that working for them. So what we do is we look at the categories and be like, all right, can we achieve the minimum that we need to do? And then what are the things that would be the easiest for us to push up and so for something like we're really known for like exercise selection and biomechanics and stuff like that mm-hmm. um that's one of those things where it literally takes no effort like if you have two machines you got two chest machines at your gym or whatever one of those is going to fit you better it takes no effort to just do the one that's slightly better right so that's one of those things where it's like okay well there's there's usually no aversion to just choosing an exercise that okay this is going to be better for our goal today right so then we look at the next process of like okay well what am i more likely to get out of this person in terms of you know effort and volume and stuff if you're a training if you're a coach and you're training people online it's hard you, you can't push somebody in a set like you can in person so maybe volume is more your tool because it's like, well, okay, maybe, you know, they won't get a few of those reps that they would have gotten if I was there, you know, pushing them through that set or if they had a spot or whatnot. But volume is the tool that the person can do, you know, and stuff like that. So we kind of work down the this this threshold. So you're basically looking at exercise selection technique. And then we look at like effort and we'll have like subcategories of effort, right? In terms of like, you know, loading and proximity to failure. And then we'll have volume and frequency. So basically quantity is a category, uh, if you will, right? And then we'll look at recovery as a category in terms of like, well, okay, well, what, what things do they have to be able to put in that bucket, right? In terms of, you know, nutrition and sleep and, and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, so like those are our buckets that we're trying to fill from a minimum threshold. And then we look at, well, what, what can this person do? What's What's the easiest way for them to get more out of this is there one category that is very easy for them to improve or there is there a particular category that's just a non-negotiable for them like yeah four days a week that's that's max okay i know that's my frequency limit for for that bucket so i have to any progress i need has to come from somewhere else Mm -hmm. now you mentioned um a situation where someone might have two different chess machines and you're going to pick the one that fits them better what sorts of evaluation, you know, how do you evaluate which one's better? Yeah. Well, the easiest thing is, is when you, when you're very specific about your goal of what you want this exercise to accomplish. Right. So when we're looking like, I would say our brand is very attractive to people that are very concerned with physique development. Um, because like, a lot of this stuff transfers very directly if you already know what muscle you want to target and how you want to target it, right? So if you're like, okay, I want to work the clavicular fibers of your chest, we teach the mechanics of that. And so then it's like, okay, for an individual, which one of these things is going to line up with that motion for them better? Where it becomes a little bit more vague is when now it's like, well, my goal is not necessarily the clavicular fibers of my chest. It's just that I just want to get generally stronger. I want to lose a little body fat or, or whatnot. Right. And then we'll have to step back and be like, okay, well, what are the qualities to these? Is one of these, you know, 
does one of these complement another exercise that I do? Or for this particular individual, is the is the grip in a way that's going to violate a person's elbow or shoulder mechanics where, you know, maybe that's going to become a volume limiter or an effort limiter for them, you know, or it's going to negatively impact the performance of some other thing. So when we're looking at it, first thing we're trying to figure out is what's what do I actually want to get out of this exercise? Like, what do I want to give it to me? Is it just that, you know, I need a push stimulus or is that I need that push stimulus to be specifically biased to different tissues? I need it to be a little bit more tricep or I need it to be a specific division of the pec. The more specific the goal, the easier the exercise selection becomes. The more vague the goal, the more it's like, well, we just have a ton of things that could get the job done. But differentiating those becomes a little bit harder because the goal is a, a little bit more vague, right? So then a lot of times it's like, well, okay, maybe spending all that mental energy trying to pick between a couple good enough exercise isn't the place to be there or isn't the place to spend your mental energy. Maybe now is the time to be focusing on, all right, well, how do I get more effort or how do I be more efficient with the volume and stuff you know, that I'm doing since I have several of these tools that can get the job done relatively equally. Now, how do you arrive at an exercise that ultimately becomes very, very targeted? Like what exactly are, is going through your head to be able to say this particular exercise is much more specific for clavicular pec fibers than this exercise, which might be targeting, let's say, sternal pec fibers? Mm-hmm. Well, really, it's about how much that exercise resembles the, we'll say, like the anatomical motion of that tissue and basically what we're looking at is so if you were to take the clavicular pecs for example and you were to look at well what is the arm position in which they are at their greatest stretch possible and what is the arm position at which they're at their most shortened you know fiber possible and then there's a path of motion there's a direct line that goes between you know from point a to point b and it's like okay the more an exercise resembles that motion the more biased that tissue is going to be. And there's tons of different ways that people do modeling and stuff like that. You know, we can look at internal moment arms and we can use our EMGs and all that stuff. The one thing that I found that's the most consistent is just simply this principle of like, well, if we can figure out the absolute most stretch and the absolute most shortened position for this muscle, that path of motion, all of the other like proxies that we have to use, all the other models seem to align very, very well with that. And so really it's about how well does this exercise match that motion? And then the next layer on that would be like, okay, throughout that motion, what what type of resistance is that, is that giving me, right? Or what percentage of that motion? Because oftentimes an exercise doesn't give you a hundred percent of the anatomical range of motion. It's usually it's a portion, right? It's either the mid range or maybe you get the shortened half or the length of half or whatever. And so that'll be a factor in the decision-making too. It's like of the total possible motion of this muscle, which portion of that does this exercise train? And what is the resistance curve or the resistance profile of that? Like, where is this actually going to challenge that muscle the most? And then I have, well, does it bias this tissue? If so, where in its range and with what type of resistance challenge. And now I know like, okay, this exercise really fits my goals. So, you know, I, I um, some of the things that I'm reminded of, like in a, in a, I mean, it's not exact, of course. And I don't ever want to like lump coaches together because there's so many differences, but I can recall Brett Contreras talking about, um, you know, vectors in terms of directional vectors and looking at EMG and sort of, you know, really pushing for, for glute bridges 
as the primary, uh, you know, exercise to be able to grow and develop glute hypertrophy and thinking that it's going to drive that to a greater degree than squats. Uh, and I think that what we've seen has been like the, the overall research from longer evaluation perspectives shows that the squat was superior to a glute bridge, despite the fact that EMG was lower, despite the fact that it's like not in exactly the right line, according to fibers and things like that, but probably because it's, a, you know, a greater range of motion, potentially it's training the muscles in a more lengthened position uh, from the bottom part of it that it's, it's probably just more forces overall. Um, so, you know, what, when I say something like that, what is, what does it make you, what, where does your brain go with that? Well, when it comes to evaluating exercises, like we have all these proxies and then in, in rare cases, we actually have longitudinal data showing like, well, this exercise is better for a burpee than this other one, but every proxy has its limitation. And so I look at this and I say, well, context is king. Right. So, you know, like we in, in, in our in-house lab, we look at force data. We, we, we use the, we do the hemodynamic. So we use like the moxie, you know, we're looking at blood oxygen and the muscle. We're looking at EMG. We're laying that layer of that on top of, you know, all the biomechanical modeling. And then we're, we're trying to add that to all the research that's there and all the experience we have as coaches and put all of that together. But you have to look at each of those pieces in context. Right. So if you take something like EMG. You know, EMG is a terrible tool if you're comparing exercises that work different amounts of range of motion or different portions of the range of motion. So comparing like a bridge to a squat or a hip thrust to a squat, EMG is not a very good proxy tool for that because it, it doesn't do very good at comparing exercises that are working different ranges of motion or different sizes of range of motion. So we have to look at like, well, okay, what data do we have? How can we look at that data contextually? Because like you said, with the squat, well, all right, well, it's getting more of a stretch. So we have this, you know, this theory for stretch mediated hypertrophy. That's not going to be something that would show up on something like an EMG, right? Um, both of these, both, you could have two exercises that both fit in the anatomical path of motion for something, but one could be on the shortened half and one could be on the lengthened half. And therefore, depending on the goal and where you're putting this in the workout, et cetera, one of those exercises might be a better, you know, a, a better selection. So right now it's seems, you know, the trend is leading towards, well, lengthened exercises seem to outperform shortened exercises in a set equated manner, right? Um, but also like in practice, we know that, well, lengthened exercises also to send tend to produce a little bit more fatigue and a little bit more soreness and things like that. So you could look at it and be like, well, it's not just that this exercise is better because, well, this one is more lengthened. It's like, well, that's better in a one-to-one -one case for hypertrophy, but maybe the shortened exercise is a better place to introduce a new person to because they don't have to be crippled to necessarily get the benefit at that point in time because they'll be so sensitive to the stimulus. Or maybe my goal is, you know, since maybe it's a metabolic or some sort of performance outcome where I actually don't want to be limited by the fatigue and the volume constraints and the soreness of that lengthened exercise. So I'm going to need this other thing. Or maybe having that resistance profile or that range of motion promotes a dynamic skill that will be better and carry over to this to, to this person's goals so it's really it's really about looking at, at the data that we have and looking at it in context relative to the goal right and so i think what happens is people get 
people get tribal about which categories they think are most important. It's like, well, exercise is more important or volume is more important or, or whatever it is. Right. When in reality, like I said, well, there's a threshold of like, you should be good at everything. And then you should try and, you know, improve the things that are going to give you the, the biggest return on your investment. Right. Whether that's pushing volume or, you know, being more, you know, particular about your technique. Right. And then the same thing this is like, when it comes to looking at our, our tools of evaluation, people like to rank, like, you know, one tool, you know, like we have this thing between like the bro community and the evidence-based community. And it, in reality, it's like, you should look at all of the data and you should just try and look at that data contextually. And then that's often going to give you a better decision-making process than trying to, we'll say, make an absolute best or an absolute winner out of things, you know, or a one, one size fits all. Um, because there's, there's going to be times where a hip thrust is a better exercise and there's going to be times where squats going to be a better exercise and the context is king and understanding more about the nuances of what those things provide in terms of the stimulus will help you make that rather than saying, well, a squat's better for glute growth than, you know, than a, than a hip thrust or a bridge. Well, what if your program has already included, you know, a ton of stimulus in the length and position? Is smashing that with more length and stuff going to be beneficial or would maybe now actually working part of the range of motion that has not been stimulated in that program actually be more complementary, right? And so it's like, you have to take all of that context into consideration. Yeah, I appreciate the answer. It's very thoughtful and, um, and thorough. And, um, you know, I think overall, uh, I always try to appreciate the total picture and not mm -hmm. become too too focused on anything that's just like a single data point. And I'm always trying to preach to people that we're trying to find conglomerations of data. And when they begin to align and show correspondence, I start to feel a little bit more confident and comfortable with whatever approach it is that we're doing. Like a single data point is really, it's typically not enough to be able to get excited over, to really put your faith in, anything like that. So yeah, I, I totally uh, uh, like the thought process. And from the perspective of changing movement, which is often where I am, am working from, like I, if I'm working with athletes, I'm looking to change their movement potential. And with that, you know, and of course I have evaluation and it's a, a table test. And it's the most standardized thing I could possibly come up with. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. everything else is way too subjective and based on way too many environmental factors. At least a table is flat. And I'm the same person moving them through space. And, you know, it, it controls for a lot more things. But um, there's a million avenues into being able to change movement potential. You know, I've seen amazing things happen from exercise interventions, uh, interventions with like orthotics for the feet, interventions with glasses, interventions with dentistry, interventions with hearing. Like you, you have all of these 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 um, inputs that have the ability to kind of clean the slate in some ways. And um, and what I'm always looking for is essentially a similar path. What's the least invasive? What's the smallest bullet that I can fire in the beginning to get this train rolling? And once I've done the smallest one, and if that hasn't worked, I can go on to a bigger one. I never want to start somebody off with like, stuff in their mouth, glasses, and orthotics on their feet to begin with. It's like I just fired a nuclear bomb at the person. And it's very unlikely from like the perspective of really long-term change that any of that's going to stick. You know, it'd be like starting someone off. 
that's never lifted weights and putting them on the most advanced program of all time. It's like absolutely unnecessary. There's so many easier things that are going to work in the beginning. So um, I, I do I do really think that good principles carry over to way more than just whatever the specific thing is that the person's currently talking about. Like it should apply to uh, many, many other realms of of whatever it is that you could be working on in life. So I, I just want to kind of highlight uh, a, a deep sense of appreciation for the answer that you gave there. Um, you know, speaking of camps, though, we all ha- like end up in a camp somewhere. And some of the oldest, uh, most uh, heated camps from a hypertrophy perspective are sort of like the low volume, high intensity camps versus the, you know, let's just say higher volume camps. But, you know, when you think about those two realms, where, where does your, your mind go uh, in terms of your evaluation of that? Well, um, the, like, there's a million quotes on like, you know, how like balance is, is key, right? And I, I really think that's where it is for those things. Um, you know, and a lot of times, you know, when it comes down to it is just that if you just zoom your lens out enough, like when we're looking at hypertrophy, hypertrophy is a magnitude of stimulus times the exposure of of, the, of that, right? And so you can get that with either increasing the magnitude or increasing the amount of exposure, right? And you can increase that amount of exposure through, like, if you're doing harder sets, well, harder sets are more reps, you know, and so that's more more volume. So really it comes down to is, is like, well, just properly applying volume and then just understanding how to actually qual, you know, equate how much work you're getting done. So you look at those and it's like, well, both of those are valid, right? You know, cause if I'm getting, you know, if I'm getting similar number of exposures per week at a similar intensity, does it really matter if I do it, you know, in three sessions per week with a ton of volume per session, or if I do it, you know, spread out, you know, and then there's the whole time factor too, right? Cause it's like, well, even if you're doing less over time, but some somebody's just willing to train for a couple more years than the other person or whatever has been. That's where a lot of the personal experience and anecdote comes in. This is like, man, well, time is such a factor in there, right? You know, because like what you're willing to tolerate in terms of how much effort, but how long you're willing to do that effort and then what your acceptable results on there. Somebody could be getting really slow progress, but because perceptively to them, they see this as this very long journey, that they're like, man, thanks for moving. Thanks for moving. Great. And then you might have somebody else. It's like, look, you know, if I don't have the best pump in the world, like 15 minutes into the session, then it's not, then it's not working. Right. And so you have all these biases going into like, well, how, how well does this stuff work? And I think, you know, from the evidence-based space, what we've learned is to like, you know, you just have to get that exposure, right. It, It becomes less important how you get it and more important, that you get it, whether it's through, whether it's through frequency, whether it's through volume, whether it's through, um, through intensity. And so it, then it becomes, comes back to your original thing of like, well, which one of those is the least objectionable, objectionable for that person, right? Is this a person that loves to work hard, right? And sometimes that's the thing too, right? Like you'll have some people that psychologically, it's like, if you put them on an RPE based program, they just hate it. Like they want that set that they get to, you know, that they get to turn up to 10. Like that's what makes them feel like they got something done that day. And so they're much more likely to be consistent if there's, 
if they get that reward in their program, that there's that mental aspect of, you know, pushing themselves to their limit in their program, but cool. But you, as a coach, you have to understand, well, if I tick this box, that means the volume box has to be adjusted or the frequency box uh, has to be adjusted. You may have somebody completely on the other side of the coin where you could write, you know, zero RAR for every set in their program, but you know, they're going to stop, you know, five reps short of failure. Right. So then again, it's like, all right, well, I know if we can't take that box, well, then I'm going to give this person a little bit more sets, you know, or I know this person can train, you know, a day or two earlier than they, than the, my other athlete would have, where they would have actually been hitting those, those targets at, you know, the effort that they were supposed to. So when it comes to those camps, I mean, it's, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really pick sides with these things because the, that's the whole, the whole purpose of our brand is, is it's N of one, right? Is the get to get away from making decisions based off of like, well, volume is better than this. And it's more so with this person is volume or frequency or intensity, which of those is a, is a better strategy? Which of those is a better progression from where we are now? Right. And that'll be individual specific. Sometimes it'll be exercise specific, right? Like some exercises are just easier to push deep into failure than, than other exercises, right? It's a lot easier to take a leg extension to where you can't move it anymore than it is to, you know, take a, you know, a front squat or something like that. So I was actually thinking front squat before you said it too, when you were, when you were mm-hmm. going in that direction. Um, does this change for you? You know, when, when I'm thinking about like uh, implementation of volume, it's very much going to change based on what's happening nutritionally. You know, like if I have someone that is not in a surplus, like to me, best case scenario is maintenance of of tissue, you know, and in order to be able to get maintenance, I want to bring volume down, but proximity to failure really needs to be there. You know, it's like, you got, you got like a couple shots at this muscle a week, but you better go get it at, at the time. Versus if someone's in a surplus, it's kind of like, hey, uh, you know, we, we can be a slightly less, uh, you know, in terms of the proximity to failure, but we're going to really begin to push the volume from a sets perspective. Um, you know, mm-hmm. for, for you, does that factor in or is there, you know, some other variables that you can think of outside of just nutrition that might change that that overall design for you? Yeah, well, I would say everything on in, on in the recovery category affects that, right? Like, if you have any limitation in recovery, whether that's going to be you know the quality of the diet, the whether you're in a surplus, you know, the sleep, the stress, all of those things, those make it so that efficiency is now something you need to seek in your training. Um, and I would say this is one of the places that I get the most kickback because you have all of the people that are just like, you know, they're taking a ton of juice and a ton of food and like, well, it doesn't matter if I do this or whatever. And I'm like, well, it's because you have this huge buffer in terms of your recovery. Right. You know, and it's usually, it's usually people that, you know, they don't have a real job or anything yet or whatever, like, you know, their life stress is extremely low, right. If they have a bad TikTok post, that's like the, that's the worst part of their day. So of course, of course for them yeah of course for them they can afford to be extremely inefficient in the things that they're doing and still make progress but as soon as you start tightening that window in terms of the resources that you have available to perform and recover then all of a sudden these small little things that would be seemingly innocuous to somebody else now become you know almost like lifesavers for somebody's program in terms of their ability to still get a stimulus so when we're looking at things like oh okay we're doing like very nuanced exercise selection or we're working different types of supersets order or special types of sets order and like all of these little tricks that like we'll say like some of the evidence 
events community be like, well, none of that matters. But like, man, those are the little tricks that allow me now to take somebody that, you know, I would have had this like very boring on paper program. Now it's just, it's all this fancy stuff, but these fancy things are like helping with an efficiency standpoint that are allowing this person to like maybe work a little bit harder or push a little bit harder than they otherwise would have, you know, in the deficit or in the, you know, lack of recovery, you know, that they have. And so anything that you can do on the efficiency side becomes exponentially more important as soon as you And, you know, to me, that's, it's like, like you're just talking about logistical problem solving inside of constraints. And oftentimes that's what good coaching comes down to is just recognizing like, Hey, what are the limitations that I'm facing right now? Mm -hmm. And with those limitations, how do I best problem solve within this particular circumstance? And that's sort of like, I feel like people take heat when they see just what someone's doing without any context like oh and and then they assume that that's everything that you do all the time and you're like whoa not really like this is we're doing this because of factor a b c and d all working together so that this becomes the most intelligent choice for this person right now to move them towards their goals considering all of these factors so I, I, I do, I do get that. Like, you know, when you think of some particular exercises for, from the perspective of hypertrophy that just make no sense to you, that you feel like you're like overblown, overrated, people just use, and they're just not really accomplishing what you would hope for. What are some of the, the top hitters that come to mind in terms of like, oh, please, can this exercise just kind of go away? Um, we're talking about hypertrophy specific and we just want to, we just want to piss a lot of people off. You know, we can just point out something like the sumo squat, which, you know, right from the beginning. Right. I mean, when you think of like, well, from a hypertrophy perspective, I want something that is going to be targeted to the tissue I want. I want it to be taking that tissue likely through an appreciable range of motion, you know, and whatnot. And you look at something like the sumo deadlift, right. Where the goal of that exercise is the opposite of pretty much everything that you would want from a hypertrophy perspective, right? Like it's designed to limit the range of motion and to distribute the load, which is why it's such a good strategy for a lot of people when it comes to moving a ton of load on the bar, right? Because it decreases how far they got to move it and it spreads the load out across the body as much. So a lot of times things that we may do from a performance perspective are intuitively opposite of what we want from a hypertrophy perspective. Because oftentimes in hypertrophy, we're trying to disadvantage our body and we're trying to narrow what what tissue we have that can actually, you know, overcome that force. Whereas in athletics, like being a great athlete is being a great compensator and figuring out how to how to produce the most with the least, right? So um so it's going to be movements like that, right? So, you know, and pretty much anything that you would do in, in, in Olympic lifting, right? Like none of those things, like, okay, well, these are dynamics, you know, we look at plyos and they produce about the same amount of hypertrophy as walking on the treadmill, right? So it's like, do they produce some hypertrophy in like untrained individuals? Like, yes. But like, if you, you know, is that, is that going to be meaningful? If your goal is hypertrophy, is that going to move the needle, re- you know, relatively? No. So, I mean... That that's the first example that comes to my mind, and you know, and then there, anything that presents a limiter that isn't the target tissue, right? So that means anything where your ability to stabilize is gonna is gonna is gonna come down, right? And this is why it's like, you know, 
um, a lot of people will use like anterior loading, you know, squat type stuff or whatnot um, in, in general preparation programs or performance programs. But when it comes to hypertrophy, I'm like, what that that's now I'm introducing something that's might be a limiter over the quads. So if it's like, man, if I can do a pendulum squat or a hack squat or use heel elevations or something where it's like, all right, this is going to allow me to target the quads, but it's not going to tax my ability to breathe or my, you know, spinal stability or any of those things more. It's like, that's what I'm looking for. So, you know, it's, you're looking at exercises that, you know, that are either designed to be purposely unstable or be designed for just to put the most load on the bar those usually aren't the things right like rack pulls is another another example yeah. right you know you know use every plate in the gym and, and lift the bar up you know three inches or, or whatnot right it's like probably not you know unless it's like the only load that you get on like your traps like or something like that it's probably not going to be you know a, any significant you know input in terms of hypertrophy stimulus mm-hmm. um now, if I was trying to work adductors, would a sumo stance exercise be an effective choice? Well, would it be effective? What what I would say is, is that, you know, this is probably coming, coming when we're talking about like biases in terms of like how stance affects adductors or glutes and whatnot. Um, and so when we're looking at, you know, a wide stance, clear go, you're going from a place of abduction. And then your a deduction through a deduction through the concentric. Well, yes, you're gonna you're gonna work some of the some of the adductors, right? Um, but again, you have to look at for this person doing the sumo squat, how much range of motion are they getting, and how how close to their stretch position are they getting? So my answer would be you're actually probably like even though your sumo squat or deadlift is going to be more adductor biased than glute relative to a conventional that doesn't therefore make it the best adductor exercise. If you can use a leg press or something like that, you know, or, or you have a, you have a multi-hip machine or you do a cable exercise where you can get better range of motion and more direct range of motion, then that's going to be, that's going to be better. Right. And then also it depends on which adductors you're talking about, because, you know, if we're talking about, you know, the, the longest or the brevis or the pectineus, like those muscles are actually relative hip flexors, you know, from a neutral hip position, right? So they would be adduction with flexion, whereas the the magnus, the vertical fibers, that long one, that's the one that would be getting worked in your hip extension exercises that also include the adduction, right? So which adductors? And then you just want to pick an exercise that provides that motion and as much of that motion, and if it's a hypertrophy, you probably want it to include the stretch portion of that motion. You know, I I am um, I I will probably like in, just in terms of thinking about this conversation and and I, the age old topic of sort of isolation and matching the perfect anatomical actions versus compounds and the higher forces that that kind of come into play. And I, look, obviously there's, there's fatigue elements that have to be factored in. There's all these things, but you know, when like, here's, here's one of the ways that I think about a human body is that if I look at somebody going through hypertrophy, like if somebody does a good job, like they, they're eating appropriately, they're training, they kind of grow in a way that their genetics are predetermining that they grow. You know, it's almost like we get fat the way that our genetics are predetermined in where we'll store fat. And it's almost like, I just look at like, as long as we're within this sort of like, uh, you know, you kind of called it good enough or like we're hitting the dartboard anywhere on the dartboard. 
we're providing enough stimulus for this human to grow the way that this human grows. And so long as like we're just directionally pushing forward. Um, but, you know, from like outside of that, like, have you really seen truly dramatic changes in in like really isolating specific swaths of tissue with very, very well crafted exercises? Does that really make that much of a difference? Yes, it does. But it, it depends on one the, the the where the individual is at in their training career and then mm. two it some muscles we can bias better than others right so probably like the most notable is is like for a while well you know i was just a lat person or whatever just because i you know i showed how to do a, a pull down for the iliac fibers of the lat and then that just became my identity on on the interwebs for it a while it still is man um, deal yeah. with it Believe it or not, we do, we do other exercises, um, just FYI. But, um, you know, I mean, that's one of the advantages of getting to work with physique competitors, right? Is, is they get so lean, you know, and they'll do a show and then they'll have a, you know, an off season and, and do a show and you have a history of those things. And all of a sudden you can really see that, wow, the difference that they made in this tissue now was disproportionate to the, the, the other tissues that they were doing before, right? And so we've been able to show that with things like, different divisions of the glutes or the lower iliac fibers of the lats and things like that. Now, when it comes to things like the different heads of the biceps and stuff like that, where the muscles are, are much more similar, right? Unless somebody has like a, a, a really big imbalance that that's really hard because not only, you know, not only is it hard to separate muscles that have a more similar function, um, but also then like as the body, you know, as, as that tissue grows, like visually, how do you separate that? Because if the long head grows, does it not just push a little into the short head, right? Or, you know, it's not, it's not like everything stays static. And then this one tissue just like wrote, protrudes out specifically in the vector of it, right? Like your body situates all that tissue kind of within mm -hmm. the, within that, within those fascial layers and stuff. So, you know, I would say it, it can matter a lot. And, you know, for the people seeking that, my question is, is, well, how much do you care? Right. Like if, cause it's like, if you're trying to bias this, if you're trying to say like, well, I want this thing to grow a little bit more. If I tell you, well, the maximum that you can get that to grow is 7% more. That's, 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 that's what we can do is that that's the max are you going to do it any are you going to do it anyway like i mean that just means that you're going to have to do it you know for more time right and because we don't have an infinite amount of time there is a limit on the amount of progress that you you can make on that right but if your goal is to have more of that thing there's a way to do it but you just have to accept that there isn't an infinite amount of bias or you know differentiation that you can get like we're still subject to the laws of the world and the human body and, and whatnot, you know, so it's not like we can, you know, there, there's no synthol exercise, right. Where you just like, just like, Oh, we'll just, you know, we're just going to twice the volume of, of this thing right. or, or whatever. Um, it, so it is interesting. And I know that recently you had uh, Steve trip out at one of your um, education experiences mm -hmm. and he's someone that has basically lost function of left tricep from what I understand. And uh, as a result of an, an accident that he had in competing in strongman, 
and you know you can see with him like his rear delts have sort of grown to make up for it. it it reminds me in some ways of like the old animal models model studies where they'll take a rat and like cut off its gastroc and its soleus will grow to the size of like gastroc and soleus put together and um you know i i, I look like i always try to look at like really extreme examples like that to try to illustrate like points and maybe discover uh, like avenues into training methods that might be different. You know what I mean? Like I, I've never been interested in doing what everybody else is doing. Like I'm, I'm interested in finding the Fosbury flop of whatever topic it is that I can find. And that usually comes from like, just, I don't know, a, a wider uh, association capacity of reading outside the realm of fitness directly or thinking from the perspective of like, you know, like I, like I was talking about somebody that has an injury, lost a finger and the finger next to it grows to twice the size it normally would. And, um, you know, I think that biasing exercises in ways that like remove the possibility of another muscle contributing have that like not as much you can never get there unless you literally kind of were to uh, anesthetize tissue or something along those lines but you know is is that at all something that kind of resonates with you from a thought process perspective sort of eliminating or like almost in genetic studies where they'll wipe out a gene to be able to see what happens when you literally remove something from from functioning yeah, in terms of application, I would say 90% of the time, I'm looking at this more in the lens of how do I get more out of X rather than how do I get less out of Y? That's usually the case. Mm -hmm. Like most people, most time the goal is, is like, hey, you know, I want a bigger this, not I just want this to look bigger so everything else can get smaller or, or whatnot, right? It's really, I just want this thing to grow a little bit faster or to get stronger a, a little bit faster. So really, it's less about trying to get less of something. And when we're looking at, we're looking at live humans and usually with these things is people are trying to get in a synergist group, they're trying to get one of those things to grow more than another. It's not like people come in and be like, well, I just want more back relative to chest. Well, it doesn't take a lot of bias exercises to, you know, how biases sure. and exercise need to be to be a pull versus a push, right? <laughs> it's not very hard, right? But when it's like, oh, I want this specific division of this muscle, right? You know, or this specific flexor or extensor to grow more. Um, now it's like, well, if, if you start trying to figure out how to make it less of some of those other things, you might be you might be introducing a new limiter that actually just comes in and screws up what your goal was, you know, because you're making the exercise too dysfunctional or, or too unstable mm. and whatnot. You know, the the one area where we do kind of have that maybe that takeaway approach usually is when we're looking with female physique competitors where they've been told like, hey, you know, judges say my 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 X is too big or, or whatever, but I still need to grow this. So it's like, you were okay. going to say quads, yeah. weren't you? You were going to yeah. say quads. It could, it could be quads. It could be traps. It could be, you know, yeah. whatever it may be. So it's like, okay, cool. Now I have to input a strategy for this person to grow certain parts of their lower body and not others. When it's like, well, man, how many leg exercises don't work the quads, right? right. You know? Um, and then you can't just introduce a new problem because you, you had this, this, 
girl that was like, well, you know, last time my quads were too big. So you just put her on hinge everything. And then now the next show, it's like, well, now my adductors, you know, are, are touching all the way down to my knees and my, like, you know, it's like, you don't mm-hmm. want to introduce new problems. So you kind of have to have that combination of like, how do I get the most out of this? And then maybe a little bit of like, well, and how do I reduce, you know, some of, you know, some stimulus in, in this, in this other area, you know, you just blast um, those that's a harder, with, yeah. With Botox, man, just put Botox yeah. in whatever. Nobody likes a saggy adductor though. You don't want those, those knee slapping yeah. adductors when you're running. Um, you know, um, just to, to, to kind of um, conclude here, just from a, a time factor uh, perspective, you know, when you think about like direction that you're looking at going forward, anything exciting on your radar that, that you're sort of like pumped about that you're have as a little special project or anything like that on your horizon? Well, right now we're, we're digging into, I would say like the more accessory or intrinsic muscles in terms of what we do. Like, you know, right now we're in the process of trying to work out the, the most short and the most lengthened position for all the muscles in like the forearms and, and stuff like that, um, which seems tedious, but also it's like, man, one of the things that I've noticed about these bias exercises in these um, extreme ranges positions is they have so much utility because they can be used from everything from strength to hypertrophy to even like ther- therapeutics, right? In terms of improving range of motion, you know, getting people out of pain and stuff like that. Um, and so it's going to be really exciting to have that data set and to see what we can do with that, because then essentially what I've been trying to do is get the entire body mapped, you know, in terms of like, well, what is the shortest and longest position for every muscle that we conceivably train? Um, And now we have all of the tools and now we can actually start researching, you know, different protocols and the implementation of that. So that's, that's what I'm kind of looking at is we're really close to closing our window on essentially mapping the whole body and then being able to do the next stage of research that we want to do, which is like, okay, now that we have these, now let's start actually like, you know, comparing and maybe doing some, you know, some larger study groups in terms of looking at like, all right, well, these guys did this, this, how does that impact range of motion or elbow pain, you know, and stuff like that? Um, how does, how does training with some of these bias exercises compare volume wise to doing say exercises that are a little less, less specific and stuff like that. And so we have all of these, we have all of these ideas of things that we want to plug and play, but we've kind of needed that whole body map to be able to do it everywhere. Um, and so that's what I'm really looking forward to is is that being able to see what the what the true potential is uh, of all of these positions across different modalities because it's very easy from a physique perspective of like oh you want to train that cool we know how that works and we can apply principles of range of motion and resistance profiles and volume and intensity on top of that but now we get to step out of that physique world and be like okay like now can we identify motions that are particularly weak that could be a limiter in a more dynamic or performance-based movement? Or can we identify things that seem to be more impactful in terms of range of motion for a global pattern and start to develop a system? Um, and so that's the next step is hopefully for us to get to get to a, get to a system of, be, of exercise selection that goes beyond physique. Because right now that's the limitation of what we have. If you tell me I want to grow X muscle, like I don't think there's anybody on, on the planet right now that can provide better information on how to train a specific muscle as long as you already know what that muscle is. But where we lack is, well, how do I efficiently reduce the, the number of tools to just what you would need, right? When you when it's when your goal is ambiguous, right? right? And so it's like, okay, can we use something like 
you know, a range of motion in a table type test and whatnot. And how could we condense that to as few tests as possible to get the most data possible? And that's essentially what we're going to look at doing. You know, it's interesting. We're going in, in, in different directions. I came from like the, you know, sports performance, movement, uh, you know, rehab start point. And, um, and I'm, you know, really within the last probably year, become more interested in, in training for aesthetic and physique development. And that's where my excitement and attention is being drawn towards these days. Um, so it's, it's just kind of funny how, how that can, you know, intersect and things like that. Um, but look, like as someone who I, I, I have a pretty high level of OCD and I appreciate your OCD with uh, what you're talking about in terms of a project, because that sounds like a very um, intensive sort of a, an effort that you're putting in there. And I applaud that anytime um, I'm, I'm aware of what it takes to be able to try to create a gigantic model and to map things and to build taxonomies. And it's, a, it's an enormous undertaking. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think that the next generation of people who come in and try to implement this stuff and, and make different, I, I hope they, they give you as much appreciation as you deserve because it's always the beginnings of moving the boulder that are the hardest pieces of effort. And when others can kind of jump in and piggyback off you after it's already moving and then they shoot off their new ideas, it's so much easier. But the, I feel like some of, sometimes the younger people in this field are not showing the appreciation to those who really initiate new movements. And, um, and I do know that, that you are the guy that is behind the, the, the really the vector of education that you've created. And um, I really do respect that tremendously. So um, where can people go to be able to find out more about N1, about you coach and uh, you know, what you're doing. So you can find us on Instagram. Uh, I'm coach underscore Kassem. It's K-A-S-S-E-M. Um, but we also, you know, the N1 team has two Instagram accounts, n1.education, n1.training. But Instagram is where you can find, you know, probably the biggest sampling, you know, of, of our content and some of our long form stuff. Uh, you can find us on YouTube anyway, right? I mean, the, the lazy way to do it is, is if you just Google N1 education, you're going to find all of the places that we have, regardless of whenever you happen to, uh, you know, listen to listen to this podcast. But we are we're all over the place. And, you know, what I tell people is, is that, you know, anytime you're looking at learning this type of information or whatnot, you know, online, online is awesome. But, you know, if you're really, if you really want to know where to get us, I, you would probably agree. Like you can't replace hands-on when it comes to learning motion and when it comes to learning mechanics and stuff like that. And so right now we have a, you know, a brand new headquarters in Colorado that we're, that we're teaching and we're doing practicals and stuff out there. So I would say like, that's the gold standard of like, if you really want to, you really want to get your hands dirty in terms of looking and seeing what we do, um, you know, would be to come to Colorado, especially, you know, pointing at you, Pat, as well. You got to come down and visit us at some point. I really want to. Um, I have some limitations from a life perspective. Uh, but I, I trust me, I'm going to get there yeah. and I really want yeah. to, and I yeah. could <laughs> not agree more. I never have people come to my seminars that really demonstrate to me that they really know what to do. They, they don't mm-hmm. really know how to put it together. Like I, I have not seen somebody show up and really be able to actually demonstrate a frontal plane. I'm like, this is not something that the industry understands 
And when they try to show it to me, they can't show it to me. And after they attend, it's like, boom, they get it. But it's, I'm sure it's the same thing for you where it's like, people say they get it. They don't get it. And, um, and look like, yeah, you're not going to get it until you come in person. So I could not agree with that sentiment more. Yeah. Yeah, the digital age has given us a tremendous advantage in terms of education and sharing information, but it just, it just, there's just certain things that it just simply can't replace. Right? No, for sure. Hey, I appreciate you so much. Thank you very much for coming on here. And uh, when this is all done, I'll, I'll send it your way. All right. Thank you, Pat. Have a good one.